And welcome to everybody. First of all, I'm delighted to be co-hosting Dr. E. Michael Jones' stream this evening, his cozy. So welcome to everybody on the other side of the Atlantic on this very, very special day for all of us Catholics and especially the Irish people and everyone in America in the diaspora and everyone watching from the UK as well and all over Europe. Um, so welcome to everyone. And Dr. Michael Jones, you're going to now introduce our very special guest who's coming from Massachusetts this evening, Father Jeff. Father Jeff Langen, uh, Opus Dei priest at uh, Elmbrook, which uh, ministers to the students at Harvard University and uh, MIT and all those places there. Friend of mine from way back uh, when we were together here in South Bend. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, the situation in the church 
But before we do that, I'm going to inflict some music on you.
Cloud Rover for many a year. And I've spent all my money on whiskey and beer. And now I've returned with gold and great store. And I never will play the wild And it's no name. No name never no more. Will I play the wild rover? I went to a tavern I used to frequent And the older lady named me was spent I asked her for custom She said to me, nay Such custom as yours I can get any day And it's no never from out of my pockets, I pulled sovereign's pipe, and the landlady's eyes lit up with delight. She said, I have whiskey and wine of the Return to my family, confess what I've done, and I'll ask them to take back their son. And if they accept me as I've times before, then I never will play the wild And it's no name, no name never no more. Will I play? Kahana, well, well done. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Red Thank you. So, happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day from the diaspora <laughs> in uh, the uh, American empire, the heart <laughs> of the American empire. And speaking from the brain of the American empire, we have Father Jeffrey Lang, and as I announced before, <clears throat> and as I said before, we go back a long way here in South Bend and other places. And one of the places we met to introduce the topic today was Rome, Italy. Uh, I had just given a speech in Switzerland. I went down to Rome, and Father Lang introduced me to a man who was high up in the Vatican State Department. We had lunch together, and during this period of time, I said, "There are the church is not preaching the gospel. There are three areas where it's not preaching the gospel. The Jews, church and state, 
and usury. And he said, forget it. They're never going to preach the gospel on the Jews. <laughs> he didn't know what church and state meant, but he said usury. Now that's something that we need to talk about. And so I said, well, I just happened to be writing a book called Barren Metal, A History of Capitalism as the Conflict Between Labor and Usury. And at that point, the Monsignor's eyes lit up and he said, well, if you get it to me, I'll get it into the next encyclical. And that's yeah. exactly what happened. So I, I feel honored to be co-author of an encyclical. Uh, it was uh, Laudate Si. Uh, if you read the passages on guilt, uh, I'm sorry, on uh, debt, uh, they were really passages on usury. It got changed to uh, uh, debt. But then the Pope, uh, after he went to Philadelphia, went to the United Nations, and he said uh, that usury was a problem. First, Pope he said the word. He said the word. He said the U word. First pope to say that usury was a problem since um, uh, Leo the Thirteenth uh, and Rerum the Varm. So I was hopeful at this moment. I thought the the Ch Catholic Church needs to back away from the American Empire. Uh, Ratzinger was way too close to the American Empire. Time Magazine called him the first Am American pope. And uh, this was a hopeful sign, and we left uh, full of high spirits, and that's the way it was at the beginning. And then some, something, some, something happened, and I was just talking to Father Langen earlier today about this. That man, a uh, great guy, uh, retired, and suddenly there were a whole new group of people in in Rome, and suddenly uh, the 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 the. The retreat from the American Empire proved illusory as it looked as if a whole horde of Jesuits from America magazine were about to take over uh, the church, which I think is what happened today. Anyway, that's my uh, beginning. I'd like to ask Father Langen what he saw. He was there, had a front row seat in Rome as it was happening. What do you think happened uh, from Laudate Si to Amoris Laetitia? Well, I think one thing, even in our conversations with uh, with our mutual friend, right? One of the things that came up, even when we were discussing usury, when he told us, for example, that there are associations in Rome which have all the teachings of usury going back to the fathers of the church in their in their in their heads, right? But they have very great difficulty applying it to society, right? Applying it to the circumstances. And the other thing he told us is that it's kind of the way that you work in the Vatican is that everything has to be a little bit indirect, right? You have to kind of say something. And if people really understand, they can triangulate from what you're saying to the reality of the circumstances. And so it seems to me that even in, even the way we brought it, even, I remember even the conversation we had on usury, he, he said to us things like, well, you can't just like quote Aquinas. You have to like try to articulate some principle. And I remember at the lunch that we had, we I, I even I was kind of thinking about Thrasymachus from the Republic and how he's he basically says at one point, right, that not only is does the unjust man try to set up a power relationship where he always benefits, but also an economic relationship where he always benefits. And at that moment, our our friend said, yeah, that's the kind of thing you want to do. You want to try to give us the principle, right? And then people can draw the conclusions. So I think essentially you see that happening 
even now, right? The problem is that once Don Oswald, once our friend got kind of replaced, uh, or once, yeah, the, the new people came in, it seems like in the early days of the, of the pontificate, there was a real effort. I have even, I even have a friend who was uh, released from the Gregorian University because they, were, they wanted to bring in all sorts of people who would basically become the, the engine behind this pontificate, right? Be the engine. And then all the people they brought in, my friend, who was kind of a progressive leftist anarchist even, he was, he was upset. Right. Because he saw all these people coming in who were indirect Americanists. Right? So so it seems like that, like even I even know that my, my friend showed me a speech that was written for a, um, a man who eventually became a cardinal. And the speech was this kind of a, a, a uh, an acceptable speech on the common good. And this you know, it was, it was ghost written for this, for this fellow who eventually became a Cardinal and he gave the speech on the common good. And the problem a little bit with this indirect approach is that from what I understand, when the Pope saw this speech on the common good, the Pope was saying, this is a great speech. It has all the right principles on the common good in it, but the Pope didn't know nobody, maybe nobody told him, maybe who knows, but the Pope didn't know that that this particular person was going to draw all sorts of other conclusions from the common good than what the tradition draws about the common good. Right. So I think what you see, what I saw, so I was in Rome from 2012 to 2016. And I think what you saw happening, especially after we met, especially after 2013, that time and again, various advisors would come in who seemingly accepted these principles, but they were, they would draw from them. Uh, it was kind of like my, I remember one time talking to my mom and my mom said, I just have the feeling everything I'm hearing from Rome, it's like, we're going back to the seventies, <laughs> right? We're going back to that time when everything's kind of confusing because no one's drawing the right conclusions from the principles anymore. Yeah. Those forces were there. You mentioned them to me. Uh, I know who they are. Uh, it was uh, Father Sirica's Acton Institute, which had lo lots of money from the libertarian crowd, especially the Calvinist in Western Michigan. And he would send people there. Uh, I, I hate to, uh, they, they would stand. This is I think it's your description. If it's not, you blame it on me. But these Acton Institute guys would stand like whores outside of the university and accost seminarians as they were yeah. coming in. It, was, uh, it literally wasn't much different from some of the streets you see around Termini, yeah, yeah. in Rome. So, so this was the the a subversion, a uh, 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 capitalist subversion of the Catholic social teaching that was going on before their very eyes. And and uh, of course, this is what I'm trying to the exact opposite of what I'm trying to convey. And, and yet, it was happening right there. And and all of these influencers uh, basically, I, I think, took over the mind took over the mind of Rome. It took over the papacy. But anyway, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I think what happened, like, so in other words. The, the scene I described to you, I saw of like these six or seven people in front of the university <laughs> propositioning seminarians over economic things. I mean, not, not in, not in uh, purient matters, but what that caused was a reaction 
right? In the also in the opposite direction. And 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 actually, I think what's interesting is that you mentioned America Magazine. That, for example, just this past week at Notre Dame, there was this there was this pro there was a conference on peace and justice in the Ukraine, right? Peace and war and justice in the Ukraine, and it sounds wonderful. And there was actually a prince of the church there, cardinal. And I read the I read the transcript of a speech. I didn't I didn't read the I didn't see the actual speech, but I read the transcript from his speech. And it was kind of interesting because in the beginning of his speech, he quotes Paul the Sixth, right? So Paul the Sixth was interested in peace, pachem et teres, pachem in teres, right? Peace in the world. And then he quotes John Paul the Second. John Paul the Second was interested in peace. The Iraq War was a tragedy. And then he quotes the bishops, the American bishops who wrote this document in 1983, which I remember reading when I was in high school, right, about nuclear deterrence, right? We don't want a nuclear war. And, and then he quotes Francis. He says, Francis is the Pope of peace. And he tells us, you know, that maybe just war theory doesn't apply anymore. So, you, so you're ready. You're ready. You're, and you're thinking, oh, wow, this guy is going to give us some new pacifist interpretation of the war in Ukraine. And then he says, but the war in Ukraine in the face of the barbaric aggression of the Russians, we have to find ways to defend, to give them arms, to, de to defend them. Oh, we no. have to find ways, right, to send them tanks. We have to find ways to, to fight in their heroic defense of their homeland. <laughs> and you're like, wait a second. And then you realize, well, this guy writes for America Magazine. This guy does interviews with America Magazine. This guy is, is he's presenting himself as the left, the leader of like the so-called American left, whatever that, whatever you want to call that is in the Catholic church. And yet he's just reading state department talking points in his talk at Notre Dame. And so yeah. you see, you see that both sides, both sides can take advantage of a kind of, you know, there's one danger of this indirect rhetoric, right? That That's right can take yeah. advantage of it to twist it for their interest. And then ironically, it's like both sides of the American empire. It's the, yes. it's the Republican side and the democratic side of the, of the American empire, the libertarian and the progressive side. Right. Who are both united, for example, in the, in the case of Ukraine of let's send them weapons. Let's, yeah. let's use tactical nuclear yeah. weapons. Let's drop yeah. phosphorus bombs on them. Yeah, bitter, bitter disappointment in terms of now we're getting the worst of both worlds here. Yeah. We're getting uh, warmongering and the gay disco, warmongering <laughs> in support of the gay disco. I just tweeted today, uh, why are Poles uh, going to die for the gay disco? Why are they doing that? I did a Polish show and the, po the poll who ha hosted me said there's a huge anti-war movement in Poland, but it never gets uh, finds expression because it's constantly suppressed by the media. Anyway, Gemma, 10 years of Pope Francis. Tell us what those 10 years have meant to Ireland. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Um, you know, I hate to say it, that he's done more damage in 10 years um, to our wonderful, to our country, because, you know, Ireland is, you know, was and is the most Catholic country in the world. There's no question about that. And, um you know, the Catholic culture that protected us all and made our country such a great place to live in has been utterly decimated. 
And all of the hierarchy, sadly, have, um, you know, adopted this Marxist position, basically. And, you know, many of the priests, many of the, the like the, the seminaries now, obviously, you know, numbers are on the floor. But those that get in, people, priests that have true men who have true vocations are leaving. They can't cope with it because the seminaries have been taken over by the gay disco, by the gay mafia. And, you know, these great men, we badly need priests. I was at mass today, um, obviously for St. Patrick's Day, it's a holy day of obligation. And, you know, a man from deepest Africa said mass. Now he said the most, because initially when I saw him coming onto the altar, I thought, oh dear Lord, you know, because I thought how sad because no country produced more priests than Ireland, you know? And, um, you know, but, but he gave, he was absolutely wonderful. And I thought this is the cunning of reason, as you would say, Michael, because, you know, he, he gave it to us. I mean, he basically, you know, told us as Catholics that we have to, you know, go back to St. Patrick and to appreciate everything Patrick did for us Irish, bringing us the gospel. And um, so I thought this, you know, maybe God is sending all of these migrants to Ireland. We're nearly a minority in our own country. You know, maybe there there is some logic in it. And I think some of these African priests are not going to put up with some of the nonsense coming out of the Vatican. I could be wrong. But, you know, they no, are. No. If, if you're talking about East Africa, East Africa, Uganda, the center of East Africa is the, the shrine of the Ugandan martyrs in, in Uganda. And they were martyrs because they resisted to the homosexual advances of the king. So uh, that's not going to go away. It's not going to go away uh, no matter who's pope. And appara- apparently James Martin sent uh, Pope Francis to Uganda to tell them to strike uh-huh. down laws criminalizing homosexuality and they they yeah. uh i mean they were polite but they laughed at him behind his back that's not going to happen yeah. this is I, I i'm glad you brought up the cunning of reason because i think there's a lot of hopelessness out there because that people don't know how god works in human history how he takes the designs of the wicked and turns them around and brings evil brings good out of evil and also, I'm glad you brought up the Irish diaspora because we are we are part of it. But um, my good uh, friend, Sister Ada Queen, is uh, the daughter of an Irish woman, uh, the spiritual daughter of uh, uh, Mother Kevin, who went there to Kenya in the uh, in the 1920s, I believe, and started an order a religious order, and now there are thousands of nuns. Every place I went when I was in Kenya, it was like going from one convent to another of all of these people who are the spiritual daughters of Mother Kevin. So if we don't bring this up, we are going to fall into the despair like into despair like everyone else, and that's not a correct reading of the situation. So uh, go ahead, Jeff. What were you going to say? Father, just before you come in there, I just want to say that more than likely that African priest got his vocation from an Irish priest or an Irish nun, more than likely, because it was mostly our priests that went down to Africa and, you know, through the, the, the mission. So, you know, so there it's a wonderful thing, really. Sorry, Father. No, I was just going to I was just going to add that. Right. There's so many Irish priests were in Nigeria that St. Patrick is also the patron of Nigeria. He is. 
because said that today. and mm-hmm. there's so many there's so many uh nigerians that take the name of some irish saint because because well they were evangelized by the irish i mean they, they were brought in especially in the 20th century they were brought in they were brought catholicism by the irish so and then and then i think i think that every almost every african priest i've met in the united states or in rome right they they see themselves as owing a debt right to the, both the irish the dutch the americans to go there and re-evangelize what's been lost just yeah. just uh, again when i was in tanzania the the american marino priest went over there after world war ii and brought with them uh, an enthusiasm for the church but also a, a, a lot of skills that they didn't even know they had, like they knew how to fix cars and they could do things. And they had a tremendous impact on Tanzania. Uh, and, and Julius Nerera, the first president of Tanzania, is a Catholic. He became Catholic and then, uh, but he was also a socialist. And at a certain point, he told the Marinolers to go back home unless you want to live under Ujamaa socialism. And they did. And the pump never got fixed. The pump that Father Willie put in never got fixed. So it's, it's you know, you see this movement forward. Logos moves forward and then it takes two steps back. But the point is that uh, God said, if the vision uh, stalls, wait for it because it's going to happen. And that's that's sort of what we're talking about here. This forward movement of low guys is inexorable because it's God's plan for the, for human history. And no matter how many setbacks it takes, it's going to move forward. But Gemma, tell me, can you situate the last 10 years in terms of things like milestones? Because I'm thinking about, uh, for example, the referendum on, on home, homosexuality. I, uh, the Celtic Tiger, uh, Google's arrival, uh, the abortion thing. I'm, I, I'm trying to relate this to my experience in Rome in the 1980s uh, when I met with Cardinal Gagnot. There was, uh, his secretary was Dermot Martin. Oh. Uh, Dermot Martin ended up becoming the Cardinal Archbishop of Dublin and I think the primate of Ireland as a result of that. And if I remember correctly, when the gay referendum came up, he told the people that he wasn't going to tell them how to vote. Is that true? Is that do I, is my memory correct here? Oh yeah. Oh no. I mean, none of our bishops spoke out during the abortion referendum, which was held in 2018. So we, you know, I mean, and and we had a special place in our constitution that protected the unborn. And uh, it, like, I think you know when that happened, and I'm convinced that that referendum was rigged because, you know, even though people had fallen away from the faith pro-life we were a pro-life nation and we knew that abortion was absolutely utterly completely reprehensible and immoral and murder and it that didn't even see i don't know was it a, a, in our dna to know that because of our catholic heritage but uh george soros came in here and he pumped money into amnesty and various other ngos in advance of the abortion referendum and, you know, with the help of rigging, a bit of rigging and vote, the votes being completely um, fraudulent, you know, it was brought in people and, and the help of the mainstream media as well, because they concocted a couple of fake stories in advance to get the people 
into thinking that abortion was needed and there was a demand for it. There was no demand for it. Absolutely none. And, you know, people forget that Ireland socially was very different to its two neighbours on either side, UK and US. Very different. You know, women were not inclined to use contraceptive pill because it was only introduced, you know, relatively recently, like, you know, and certainly in my lifetime, my father was a, a traditional pharmacist and, um, you know, it was starting to creep in then. And like, there was no way he would prescribe it, not least because of his faith, but or dispense it if it had been prescribed by a doctor. Um, but because he knew it wasn't good for women's bodies, it was extremely damaging. So like within my lifetime, I can see the Catholic country that I grew up in um, where, you know, there was no divorce. Contraception was a no, no. Obviously, the word gay meant happy <laughs> and there was no um Obviously, there was no abortion and, you know, none of these things. And then 20 years ago, the media started this anti-Catholic agenda. Like it was almost overnight. I mean, this same media that had been predominantly Catholic, our national station, you know, its logo was the St. Bridget's Cross. And um it just started. All of these clerical scandals came out of the woodwork. People That's were... what I was. This is. I think this was crucial. The clerical scandals were absolutely crucial, and because I think that the priest had a special role in Ireland. I mean, I, I hate to quote James Joyce, but he used to say that Ireland is a priest-ridden country. The pri the priest had a, a, a much higher position in Ireland than he did in the United States, and uh, if you attack the priest, uh, uh, that attack came from. America. They came from Boston. Okay. And the irony is that the the priests who were the cause of the scandal were the same priests that the Boston Globe and all these liberal media outlets were praising during the 1970s. And then suddenly after they encouraged the priests to act out their sexual desires, then they, after they set that, you know, they're the arsonists, then they become the fire department and they're going to expose this uh, 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 as a big scandal uh, to wreck the church. That's what I see. That's what I see is a crucial turning point uh, in yes, Ireland. And a, lot, a lot of it was in was invented, like certain other events in history. You know, where people who were children at the time were were fabricating stories. You know, this. I mean, probably a tiny, tiny percentage of priests were involved in this, but the vast, overwhelming majority were the finest men that this country ever produced. They built the best schools, the Christian brothers, you know, um, they were brilliant schools, absolutely brilliant, produced brilliant men. And as for our nuns, they were the greatest women that ever walked on this island. And I am determined that their legacy is going to be corrected and, and remembered for the work that they did. They set up all of the hospitals and the schools. Every school virtually in this country begins with saint. Right. Every hospital begins with saint and they were not looking for money, but their names have been destroyed by the mainstream media in this country who are just, you know, completely governed by money and godless. And they, the thing is, it is true, right? They did this in Boston. I remember yeah. in 1993, uh, I was with the Cardinal in Boston and with a group, I was in the university at that point. And we were, we were with the Cardinal 
And some of the students who were involved in starting a newspaper with Dr. Jones's son, <laughs> they were asking the cardinal, why don't you discipline these priests, these, these kind of crazy progressive priests? And the cardinal said, you guys want to throw people out. My job is to keep all of them in, right? I'm the big tent mentality. And it's really interesting because the specific priest that they were talking about in 1993 was the central figure in, in, when, in 2002, 2001, 2002, that led that cardinal to have to flee the country. Yeah. Right? yeah. To go to Rome. Because yeah. he was, and then this priest, that, that this, uh, for this unfortunate guy, he was murdered in jail because of the crimes he had committed. Yeah. I mean, because people in jail, the one thing they don't like is people that go after children, right? Yeah. Especially in this country. But I, I was really struck. The, 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 the one time I ever set foot on soil in Ireland was just on a flight home from Rome in 2018 and it really struck me going through the airport because that was the weekend of the McCarrick revelations it was it was right after the popes it was during the popes or right at the end of the pope's trip to ireland and it really struck me going through the airport just all the the whole of the televisions were just full of men crying because they had been abused at some oh. point in their lives and it just struck me that but, but I also know from the research that I did in 2000, when I was a professor, the research that I did 2003, 2004 on the, on the priest scandal in the United States, that people like the Boston Globe, and I'm sure that the same people were doing this in Ireland, they were waiting for the right, they knew, they knew of all this activity going back to the 1980s. They were waiting for the right moment to bring it out to use it in the, in whatever battle they wanted to use it for. Yes. Like in 2002, 2003 in the United States, they brought out all this and all this stuff so that they could get the first gay marriage laws passed in Massachusetts. Right. And also so that they could discredit the church when the church opposed the Iraq war. Right. So, so both, you know, I say that the progressives and the conservatives benefited from the, 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 the perfect storm that the media had created in 2001, 2002, with respect to the few bad apples that were in the church. Now there were probably a few more than normal, but, but that's also a little bit of a historical dynamic. But, you, but I, when, I went, when I was in the, the uh, airport in Dublin, I was seeing the same thing uh, as what that happened in the United States in 2002, 2003, right? It was clearly, this clearly was like, they're waiting for this moment to bring these things out. Yeah, there's there. Look, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center, Heidi Byrick attacked uh, Gemma. Well, this is an international conspiracy here, uh, and they're they're working. They all have the same game plan, but unfortunately, the, the church uh, never got the memo. So to get back to our our good friend uh, Cardinal Law of Boston that you you referred to, uh, I did uh, an article in uh, Fidelity. It was. Uh, 1988, uh, a block down the street from me, the head of the liturgy program at Notre Dame was found shot to death in the basement of his house, surrounded by whips and chains, uh, homosexual pornography, and automatic weapons. Uh, so I thought, well, maybe somebody should write the story. <laughs> so I wrote the story, okay, published it in Fidelity magazine. And then I'm at a conference, and who should show up at the conference but none other than Cardinal Law. So I 
went up to him and I gave him the article. And next morning he came down for breakfast and I said, you know, well, what'd you think of it? And he said, what good does this serve? You're airing the church's dirty laundry. Well, as, as uh, Father Langan mentioned, this man had to go on the lam. He had to escape from Boston to Rome to escape prosecutions. So I felt like going up to him in Rome, but I never did it. But do you know now what good this would have served if you had taken this seriously and looked into the situation in Boston? So uh, he reminds me of, of uh, Daisy Miller, the character in that Henry James novella, uh, when the uh, Mrs. Winterborn, uh, she's walking around with a gigolo and she's making a fool out of herself to the American community in Rome. And Mrs. Winterborn tries to do her favor and says, get into the carriage. And uh, you're making a fool out of yourself. And Daisy Miller says, I don't think I want to know what you mean. <laughs> That's right. Mm. This is the classic American phony assed innocence. And I think that this is exactly the response of cardinal law. I don't think I want to know what you mean. So you had to learn that lesson in the expensive school of experience, didn't you? And and so this is is this is this what we're talking about with Dermot Martin? Is this what we're talking about with the church in general? Is that they they I don't want to know what you mean? It's too horrible. We can't deal with it. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. That's my experience because I challenge these new world order priests all the time you know I, i'm convinced maybe they don't really have vocations even though i still consider them ordained but the ones with vocations didn't they weren't allowed through and when you try to have a conversation with them about things that they've said during mass for example let's pray for the ukrainians well i said well what about the russians can we pray for them as well we're not supposed to take sides you know we're we're neutral anyway as irish as an irish nation we're neutral so why are you taking sides with ukraine and but you can't talk to them you can't have a conversation with them they just shut it down immediately and that says to me that you know they're not open to the truth so they've been indoctrinated somewhere along the line there's a there's a in the in the history of the church there's always this figure of the court priest and the court bishop right with a going back to the Aryan crisis you can see it where there, are, it's, it's, I think it's subtle, but it's it's always present, right? The you want the, the priest or the bishop. On the one hand, there's the desire of, well, if we could influence the leaders, wouldn't that be great, right? Wouldn't it be great if because leaders help to set the laws, they help to set the educational system. If we could influence the leaders, wouldn't that wouldn't that be great as far as promoting a healthy culture? But then, you know, I, I guess in the modern times, we call it mission creep, right? That you can be so intent on wanting to influence the leaders, influence the rich and the powerful, that you end up just becoming their spokesperson, right? Because the rich and the powerful, they all, we, we again, we've gone through this at culture wars over the years, how you know, these, CIA, these documents going back to the 1950s, where Henry Luce and C.D. Jackson and the CIA and along with a professor from Catholic University of America, I, I don't remember his name at this point, but they all they all came to the conclusion: wouldn't the, wouldn't it be great if the church could become an an organ, a propaganda organ for the United States for the American project? I mean, it has it has it's an international institution. It has these mechanisms of communicating all over the world, 
a few leaders can say something and everybody else takes it seriously and at least considers it and might be willing to repeat it. Right. If we could, if we could have influence in that institution. So there's always this question that on the one hand, right. The, the priests and the bishops, they, they, they want to influence the politicians. They want to have a voice you might say, but then on the other hand, the politicians, the George Soros's of this world, the people at the Acton Institute, the think tanks in D.C., they also see the church as a, as a mechanism for their interests. And so it's never clear, like, who's influencing who? I mean, it can become this thing of, like, who's actually influencing who? When I was right after in 2014, I was at a conference in, in Rome where the World Economic Forum came and had a conference in the Vatican. And again, I, I was I, I told my uh, I told my friend in the State Department, like, what's going on here? I just did a little bit of research into the World Economic Forum. And I thought that's the first time I ever really had heard of it in any kind of serious way. And I did a little bit of research and I just thought this guy, Klaus Schwab, doesn't seem to me like the guy you want to have in the Vatican, like to promote him. And I remember my friend in the State Department, he said nothing comes out. He was actually against he, he didn't like the fact that this was happening. Right. But he said nothing good comes out of these meetings other than maybe you meet someone that you become friends with and at some point in the future could help the church if there's a crisis. Right. But 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 you can see that especially in I mean, especially in Rome, because it's a court, it's the court of a king. Right. And in Rome, at least from for an American, for me, Rome, there was always this like excessive concern of, for public relations what things look like, right? Can we somehow create an environment where like the EU, the World Economic Forum, right? European leaders, can we somehow still have an influence with them? And I, I just get the sense that a lot of times in Rome, and maybe this is where this influences the, this, this does influence, right? The European bishops, European cardinals, and and how they form their priests, right? They they still so badly want to have good relations with these quasi, you know, these quasi aristocratic institutions that are still part of the EU network, the EU makeup. Yeah, yeah. This is. I hate to say this, but uh, there was a certain group that came over to America that was very avid to be accepted by the uh, ruling class elite. Uh, so I can speak openly about this because I'm part of that ethnic group. It was, it, was the, it was the Irish. Yeah. It was the Irish. And my great aunts came over here when my grandfather came over here and they worked as servants in the houses of the rich. Now, the, 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 and they, I was always told as a young man that, the Irish had a great advantage because they spoke English. And I suppose that was an advantage originally. But then I met Terry, then I met Terry O'Reardon, uh, the, the Irish teacher uh, uh, at Notre Dame, now in Montana, who told me it was the worst catastrophe that ever happened to the Irish because they lost their identity because they started speaking the language of their uh, oppressor. Now, the Germans had a different point of view. The Germans didn't speak English when they came over here. They wanted to be off on their own. 
They wanted to have their own institutions, and America at that point allowed you to have your own institutions. And so my German grandfather uh, went to a church in St. John uh, Bishop Neumann's church in Philadelphia, and the language of instruction was German. So I'm, uh, this is why I have multiple personality disorder, because I can see both sides of, of the equation. But the Irish... <coughs> People like Bishop Ireland of uh, St. Paul hated Germans. He hated Germans. He, he referred to the distinguished theologian at Catholic U, Cahensley, as a beer-guzzling Dutchman. I can, I can hear that uh, voice from my Irish ancestors, although they guzzled a lot of beer themselves, I have to say. Uh, and, and the worst thing in this regard that happened was the anti-communist crusade of the 1950s, because every religious order was against communism and they all signed on and they were all taken to the cleaners by the CIA who abused them and got them. This is, I think my personal feeling is this is the downfall of the Jesuits in America. It began with the anti-communist crusade. It was the downfall of many orders. Opus Dei, when they came here, okay, in the 50s, the founding members of the American Opus Dei got here at the high noon of the anti-communist crusade, and it fit in with their apostolate, their charism, like a hand in a glove, because Monsignor Escrivá had grown up in Spain, was a priest in Spain at the time of uh, the Spanish Civil War, and they all got taken in. The danger is that always with the churches, somehow they feel they can't exist without an emperor to support them. Now you see, I think you see, for example, right in the 50s, the Irish Catholics get into Harvard, for example. Harvard being the institution that produces the, the ruling elite in this country. And especially after the assassination of Kennedy, right? And actually that, that's an interesting thing also to reflect on. But I think, I think after the assassination of Kennedy and the, the cultural revolution of the 50s or the 60s, sorry, right at that point, and especially since the 80s, right, the ruling elite now, the ruling, the middle class is shrinking. The ruling elite is becoming like the top 10 percent. And all the Irish Catholics were like half in the ruling elite and half in the middle class. And you can see there's just from a socioeconomic standpoint, right, that there's there's such a strong desire to conform, especially you see this in Catholic universities, places like Notre Dame, we so badly in order to keep getting money from the ruling elite, we have to adopt their agenda, which, which now of course is, is. Yeah. If there's ever a classic example of mission creep, it was that agenda. So you yeah. start off uh, opposing communism and you end up supporting genital mutilation of children. And, and, nobody, the, gay disco. and the gay disco, wait, how do we get there? What happened here? <laughs> no, they, I, the interesting thing about Ireland is it happened so quickly there. Yeah. As opposed to America, where it, it took decades. It seemed to happen in Ireland like overnight. Well, the, the media, you know, the, the, one of the mechanisms they used was to continuously tell the Irish people that their history was appalling, even though we have a wonderful history because. You know, we defended our faith over hundreds of years of persecution. But, you know, it was about we're, we're not giving up the mass and that's it. You know, we're not adopting the Book of Common Prayer. And but there's so, the, you know, people my age group and younger 
consistently told it was a horrible place. Women were treated appallingly. They were told they should be with their children. Imagine they should be in the home rearing their children. What a terrible thing for a woman to do. And so they were completely, you know, um, indoctrinated with all this feminist nonsense. Um, But also, like within us as Irish people, there is the colonial stamp mark and this brings about an inferiority complex. And I think that that's certainly affected a lot of the diaspora in the UK and the US, that they did have this sense of, you know, second class citizens and being used to being mistreated uh, by their colonial masters through the generation. So then suddenly they saw in America that they could, you know, have the American dream. They could rise, rise up the ranks in Washington, even if it meant you know, not being true to their Catholic faith anymore and having to get get involved in the skullduggery that went on in D.C. And we see so many Irish names in in American politics now, which are, you know, these names are just synonymous with the most corrupt, vile, evil practices going on in within American government. And it makes me ashamed to be Irish. You know, these people have risen right up uh, through the ranks of that swamp. That, um, like the Kennedy family. Uh, you can say what you want about John Kennedy. Uh, he was no saint, but I think he felt he had a mandate from the American people, and I think he understood that he was put in office by the Catholic solidarity, the voters there at that point. And Robert Kennedy, I think, was an even stronger figure. He had uh, 10 kids, right? He had 10 kids, right? A, a, a very powerful figure uh, went after people, uh, went after the Jews, for example, as attorney mm-hmm. general, uh, uh, showed up in J. Edgar Hoover's with a uh, J. Edgar Hoover's office with a dog and announced that he hated faggots. <laughs> this, this No wonder he, well, this is why he got shot. I mean, basically, yeah. and, then you, and then you have the transition to Teddy Kennedy, who basically bought into the whole agenda because he didn't want to be killed. Right. He didn't want to be shot. And that was, in a sense, uh, the, the, the betrayal, the turning point of these this Irish uh, aristocrat, uh, American nobility, if they ever had one, Catholic nobility in America was the, the, the Kennedy family. And uh, Kennedy. Kennedy, Kennedy capitulated completely because he was a, uh, uh, what should I say? He was controlled by his passions. And people knew that, and so they could control him by by his passions. And that's the story of the Irish. It's a story of the Catholics. It's not yeah. just the Irish, but it's a story of what happened to Catholics over this period of time uh, under a hierarchy that simply didn't understand what was going on or later on refused to understand. I think there's another element here, and it's it's funny. I was talking to this Chinese convert the other day, and I was explaining to him I, I, someone had shown me a letter of one of the letters of uh, Joseph Ratzinger, basically explaining how the diplomacy or the, the overall strategy of the church from Rome down to the bishops and whatnot, it's, it's to de-emphasize these institutional relationships. That's what they, that's, that's the terminology they use, which essentially, which, and when, as soon as I was saying this to this Chinese fellow, he's fairly well read. He said, that's like King Lear. It's like taking your authority and giving it up. It's like it's like taking your authority and abandoning it, right? And 
why why are you why why are you puzzled when you suffer and then this chinese guy said to me why are you puzzled if you suffer after abandoning your institutional authority right <laughs> and uh but i think i think that's also part of the part of what we see in ireland you know that that it's almost like the the, the culture war equivalent of the cristeros movement where at some point the cristeros in mexico they were trying to defend the faith right they were zealous in defending the faith but at some point from rome they said no no more no more defending the faith you just got to you got to throw up the white flag and and then there was you know there a number of martyrs at that point but i think that i think you see something similar happening in ireland and other countries where the inst- you saw this happening in the us and in germany in the 60s and 70s with the whole the legion of decency the whole effort to try to have some institutional relationship with Hollywood to have them make decent movies. Uh, but you see that time and again, the church will throw up the white flag rather than exercising its institutional authority. It'll flow, throw up the white flag. And then you see tragedy. That's exactly what happened at Vatican II with the German equivalent of the Legion of Decency, the Volkswagenbund. Yeah. The Volkswagenbund was the Legion of Decency. They were fighting a, ba- a deadly battle there, and Cardinal Frings was a heroic figure, uh, both in, def- in defending the German people, first against uh, the Jew and Morgenthau plan. Uh, uh, the Jew Morgenthau wanted to starve the German people to death, but then after that, under the Marshall Plan, he defended them against the obscenity that was sweeping into the country. Right. And at this point, right, he's... Ratzinger is his Peritus. Ratzinger is in Rome. He shows up and he basically throws out the Ottaviani documents and says, uh, let's, we have nothing to fear from the modern world. We need a new oh. approach. <laughs> <laughs> Famous last words. Like there, there are no Indians over that hill. We have nothing to fear from the modern world. And the, and the rest is history. We do have to fear the modern world. Anyway, I have to... I, I have enjoyed this conversation immensely, uh, but I have to go. I have to ce- continue to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Good. I hope that we can continue this at some time or other. Anyway, thank thank you for being here. Gemma, you have the last word. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Father. And I, I would absolutely love to continue this conversation. And I, I do want to say, you know, I, I often think that, the priests that we have in Ireland now and, you know, we're, we're disillusioned a little bit, obviously. But I really do feel that um, we, we have so many great young men coming into the priesthood at the moment and coming from orders, French orders and that and very traditional Catholicism creeping back in, which is fantastic. So people should not lose hope. You know, the church no. is definitely enjoying a resurgence and also, the faith is coming back to Ireland. Since we mentioned Harvard, we should also make note, right, that, again, I deal with a lot of students at Harvard, but you see the church is kind of breathing normally at Harvard. And you see a number of students getting baptized, getting confirmed, getting received into the church. And they're they're They understand like they're not they don't go back and forth between the culture and living as Catholics. I mean, they're really living as Catholics. In fact, I have, I have a couple former students who are in Ireland right now training for the priesthood, for example, from Harvard. So, Wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah. You, so yeah, you, we, you see that the students, actually, I, I, I'm running across students who grew up reading culture wars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 
I I have to end. All right, I'm going to take. I got the last word. <laughs> I, was, I I knew this was going to happen. Uh, I gave a speech in uh, Gettysburg recently at a farm farmhouse, and uh, the man who arranged the priest was uh, the or lecture was a seminarian from Mount St. Mary's. Well, wait a minute. Don't we have rooms, uh, uh, lecture halls at Mount St. Mary's? Well, no, not for E. Michael Jones. You don't. <laughs> But on the other hand, 15 seminarians showed up at my talk that I wasn't allowed to give at Mount St. Mary's. And I inaugurated a new chapter of the Nicodemus Society, which meets E. Michael Jones by night out of fear of the Jews. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Make thank, you. thank you. Thank you again. We will continue this discussion. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your St. Patrick's Day. Thank you, right. everyone. Thank you, Father. And thank you to our great audience joining on Cozy, on Getter, and on my site and the various other places that we stream. Thank you all. Gurmila Mahagiv, August. Have a wonderful St. Patrick's Day to all of our international viewers and enjoy the rest of it. And Slán, Slán, everyone. Ihoa. Good night. Slán. <laughs>